Welcome to the Scandinavian Mind podcast, our weekly show about how technology is changing the creative industries. Today on the program, how to navigate the fashion industry in 2024. We recently traveled to Antwerp and the yearly design event Flanders DC, where we met some of the fashion industry's most forward-thinking people. So in this episode, we will hear from Dr. Hanna Grabenhofer, associate partner at McKinsey & Company, and Valeri Boatan, Senior Policy Officer at Ellen MacArthur Foundation. These were wide-ranging conversations about the transformation of the fashion industry covering, amongst other things, what new technologies you need to navigate our uncertain industry, a look at the recently published The State of Fashion Report, and the new legislations from the EU, specifically the eco-design for sustainable products. My name is Konrad Olsson, Editor-in-Chief and Founder of Scandinavian Mind. And I'm here with our Editor-at-Large and our man on the ground in Antwerp, Mr. Oliver Dahle. Welcome back, Oliver. Thank you very much. Super excited about doing this talk. I always love when you are out and about in Europe covering the industry for us. I think we need to start with explaining what this is really. Flanders DC in Antwerp. Uh, talk about this event. So, first of all, Flanders DC is the organization behind the event, which is the organization that works for the design and fashion industries within the uh, Flemish region in Belgium. And they, every year, has events in which they invite people that discuss the industries so every other year it's a focus on fashion and design consecutively and this year um there was the fashion talks and which then was followed by the belgian fashion awards and this event then looks fashion industry at large what problems does it have how are we able to solve this problems uh, how could we uh, look at the fashion industry and get a sustainable fashion industry that could, will flourish in the years to come so there were speakers and panel talks and breakout sessions in which you could meet uh, uh, consultancy firms tech companies, creatives, designers, and it was a very holistic view on fashion uh, in general. Well, we're, we're going to get to the conversations, and I'm so happy to have people from both these organizations on the podcast. I've been wanting to, to, to have them on for, for a long time, and so, so happy you were able to grab Hanna and Valerie. But... You know, judging from the photographs I've seen, the event looked really professional. This is a beautiful location. Can you give us some more texture on being there, being in Antwerp? Obviously, legendary city for avant-garde fashion since a few decades ago. What were your kind of impressions coming into the city and this event? First of all, Antwerp, the city, I've never been there, which has, like, obviously I have this interest in fashion looking at what i'm doing 
and it's been sort of a dream coming there and like see what's the fuss about what's happening there and honestly it exceeded my expectations it's quite small first mm-hmm. of all but there is this creative energy and like everywhere you go you have this amazing shops and designers and everyone's very friendly and there's this um like energy and attitude of basically people supporting each other and like how you would like to carry each other forward together like no matter if you're bigger designer name or like an up and coming designer or if you're somewhat connected to uh, the Royal Academy in which all of these legendary designers are coming from. So Antwerp as a city, amazing. And as you said, there is so many avant-garde designers coming from there, which is quite obvious looking at it in that sense. Yeah, well, see, we just mentioned them quickly. It's we, We're talking Dries van Oten, Ander Mühlemeister, Dirk Bickenbergs, a couple of others as well, right? Yeah, Walter van Berendonk, Marte Magella. Uh, there's a long list. Yeah, yeah. Which have made a huge mark on how we perceive fashion today. So the event, it's a huge event that gathers all these different parts of the value chain that is connected to fashion. And I think it's very uh, valuable to have all these conversations. Like, how do you look at creativity? How can you perceive fashion as like a cultural force, but also more technical things? Like, how could we sustainably like work in fashion? What Mm. are needed? And how could we have like a sustainable growth and things like this, which is becoming uh, more and more important? for every day. Let's get into your conversations because these are topics that you were able to talk to Hanna from McKinsey and Valeri from from Ellen MacArthur. Let's let's start with Hanna Grabensofer. What were your takeaways from your conversation with with Hanna? So Hanna is associate partner at McKinsey and she is based in Vienna and came to Antwerp to present the newly released the state of fashion and the state of fashion looks into how is the fashion industry doing mm. and what will be happening in the upcoming year what will be important to focus on and which focus areas and technologies will be fundamental to navigate the upcoming fashion landscape especially in these days when We could see that people are spending less money on clothing and apparel. Also looking at uh, when it's more instability within the world in general. All right, let's hear it. Here now, Oliver Dahle in conversation with Dr. Hanna Grabenhofer, associate partner at McKinsey Co. How is fashion industry currently doing yeah i mean it's interesting uh, to look at it 
you know, the time before COVID, then kind of the time during directly after and the time now where people for basically a year, a year and a half have been waiting for recovery, recovery, recovery. Mm. And 2021 was a year that was doing really well, but actually worse versus what people were expecting in terms of recovery. Mm. And then 2022, so basically it was going worse than they expected. So they kind of went on the brakes, stopped buying merchandise, all that. And the first half year kind of went better 2023 mm. so people kind of bought again bought again thought it was finally over and now the second half year is mm. super bad again. so people are all over the place in terms of is it now picking up again is it not picking up again we stop buying we buy more so everyone is sitting on tons and tons of inventory mm. that's basically killing their balance sheets and that against an outlook where now for next year, we do have to say that it will be relatively muted on average. Mm -hmm. So it's a tricky situation where everyone's kind of longing for finally some relief, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily coming. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be super gloomy about it because it's coming in certain places, mm -hmm. in certain niches. You have to be almost like surgical about identifying where the pockets of growth still are. But on average, it's not going to be a growth that's based on volumes as it has been in the past. And how should the brands navigate through these like pockets? Well, so first of all, it's kind of knowing and finding out what these pockets are. Mm -hmm. That's where the report can be helpful. Mm -hmm. That's where also kind of looking at your internal situation will be helpful and knowing what you're personally as a company are able to do. We are currently living in very uncertain times yeah. and we have been for a while. How should brands tackle these things looking ahead? Yeah, the more closer you can bring the time when you take a decision mm. on something to the time when it actually happens, mm. the better. Right. Mm. But that's where we're a bit, bit back to the fast fashion formula mm. where you have players that basically, you know, like a sheen drops 10,000 new products in a week at time mm. in super small quantities just to test what picks up. Mm. Then they produce it. And within another two weeks, they have it online in bulk. Right. So if you operate like that, it can be easier to navigate the uncertainty. Mm. Now, I wouldn't necessarily want to propagate that fast fashion model because it has a whole bunch of other implications we don't necessarily want to promote. Mm. But being reactive and being able to quickly kind of change course mm. is what you're going to have to somehow learn to mm. do. Because in the end, you can use all the, you know, modeling and predictive analytics you want. Mm. No one knows yeah. how exactly it will plan out. And I guess this must be very hard, especially within fashion, which yeah. is an industry that isn't very yeah. agile, like traditional. No, it isn't. What's interesting to me is lately I've had a lot of projects with clients around inventory management, because I mentioned earlier, mm. everyone's sitting just on piles and piles of stuff mm. and it's dangerous for balance sheets. You have a lot of cash bound, but it's also interesting if you're able to change your perspective on it and you say maybe i don't have to reproduce the newest collections all the time but i kind of use what i have mm. i kind of try to understand what i have where and where that could be helpful still mm. i can actually decrease my buy for the next season yeah. but put the stuff where it will work mm. the hard thing there is that the stuff will not necessarily work where you have it right now 
Mm. You might have to reshuffle, you know, so it's again an operational hassle. Mm. But that's one thing we see that's actually interesting, how you manage your inventory in a way that it kind of informs your future collections without destroying it or getting rid of it in off-price channels. Yeah. And do you see that brands are starting to like adapt more with their inventory or that they... Um... I think there's just this polarization, if you will, of how brands are doing. And it's totally driven by how well they've been able to execute against these things. So it's not necessarily a thing like, do I adapt now and then it will be better? But it's just this... For years now, this is the super winner thing. The industry has been going towards there's a couple of people killing it. And then there's the bulk of the market that's really challenged. Mm. And the bulk of the market so far has kind of been okay because there's still been consumer spend. And now that's kind of breaking down because in the end, the industry growth depends a lot more on pieces mm. than on actual price and, and sales. Mm. So are they adapting? <sighs> I want to be positive about it and say, yes, there's many things you can do. And I mean, we've seen with the Gen AI thing that actually more than 60% of fashion executives we've interviewed last year have already worked with Gen AI this year, mm. which is actually, I think, a decent number. Yeah. And then next year it will be 90 likely. But against that, I, it's undeniable that this proliferation of a couple of players were going to get stronger and stronger. And then the bulk who's going to keep having the same challenges. Mm. I think that's, that's strong. The only thing I may add to that is that if you, for instance, would use AI as kind of a game-changing moment, mm. release all that you've been doing, focus on that, or sustainability, you could almost plan out the same way, right? Mm. And you use those big challenges or inflection points to fully reposition the way you do business, mm. maybe that could be something. But in reality... You know, uh, big traditional companies have sometimes a hard time. But like you mentioned, a could you see mm -hmm. any other like future trends that will be important? Well, I think the two biggest ones that will shape the industry are the, you know, compliance with sustainability regulation and the AI. Yeah. Just because that they are not targeting any specific department or thing a fashion company does it targets the entire value chain you basically cannot leave any stone unturned it's really challenging and you're creating a completely new like world order almost against that so those are the two big ones and then of course there's like smaller ones like the influence how you use influencers the shift towards brand marketing frankly i think will be really hard for many because in the end, there's so many players, especially mid-market, where you've been trapped in unclear value propositions. Mm. If you don't know what you're about, your brand marketing will be very ineffective mm. and you're going to blow a lot of money. So that's also going to be challenging to act on. Mm. What do you think brands now need to focus on? So I think they should focus, number one, I still think sustainability and gen ai are two big ones you can't get around because there's an urgency attached to that mm. when it comes to sustainability the regulations kick in from 2026 mm. but if you don't secure kind of access to that ecosystem if you will right now mm. you're gonna lose out then right yeah so if we see certain large players creating a lot of mna based purchases mm -hmm to actually integrate parts of a sustainable 
circular value chain because mm. otherwise they're never going to be able to actually have suppliers who can keep up with their targets that they set for themselves mm. to deliver sustainable products. And then AI is also interesting because it's, it will build up year after year. Mm. And if you start learning and you start getting into the game, I think you'll be better positioned when it becomes deeply embedded into what you're going to have to do to succeed. Mm -hmm. You mentioned legislation mm -hmm. and like, if you speak with a lot of like NGO sustainability advocates, they say that legislation is needed to actually transform the industry. Yeah. And if you speak with brands, they say the same thing, like we need legislation to actually change something. Now it's coming, but brands are not really up to the test yet. What it feels yep. like, what is your point? That's of view? true. I have a lot of conversations on that lately that people just feel they now see that they will have to comply, yeah. but they lack the capability and the access to, you know, cleaner supply chain vendors to actually do it. Mm. And they at times lack the capability for the organizational change that will have to come with it. Mm. Right. Because in the end, it will impact all the different parts of the value chain, it will impact the type of materials you use, the type of materials you source. It will impact, you can start from design, how you design to optimize for those materials, but also optimize for sell-through potentially or for longevity. So there's so many nuances to it. Then there's the whole transportation part of it. Where does it go? There's the whole you know, resource intensity in the raw materials creation that's very often not even looked at when you look end to end, because where you start looking is kind of you buy a fabric and then I work with the producer, right? But mm. actually half of the impact sits even before that in cotton production and raw materials production. So it's really a matter of being up for the challenge, feeling kind of smart enough about it, having the capability to move the organization. And the hard thing about it, because there's so many small, cool camp companies, especially here in the Benelux, pioneering super cool solutions and doing really great stuff. Mm. But if you think about having to do it at scale, if you go through any regular high street, you look at the players there and you say, at scale, all of this volume needs to shift towards sustainable production. That's a whole different game than running, you know, local, you know, than pioneering solutions locally yeah. in smaller companies. Yeah. But do you think that the bigger companies could like win market shares if they are starting to adapt more and more to the upcoming legislation? So you can think about it two ways, right? Do I win market share or do I protect myself from losing market mm. share? I think the latter is the more realistic one right now. When you look at consumer data, there's, it's always hard to really tell is sustainable product really a purchasing criterion, right? You have a lot of issues with greenwashing. You see fast fashion skyrocketing at the moment. So find it sometimes hard to fully follow an argument of it's a differentiator. Mm. It also shouldn't be. It should be mandatory. It should be a hygiene factor. Mm. So that's why I think it's good that you have the legislation coming in to create like an even playing field, if you will. What? Do you think brands and people operating in within fashion, should, what's the main takeaways from the report? I have to think about it because we always have many, uh, but if I want to bring it down to just one, I think try and focus on the right things. There's so many things you could be doing 
but there's not maybe as many things that you should be doing. Mm. And you need to look more internally mm. than in the market. If the market is relatively stagnant, it doesn't help you to look at what competition is doing. It doesn't help you to see where are the growth pockets in the market. You need to look internally and say, what am I about? Can I do well? Or where do I have my biggest issues? Where do I leave the most potential on the table? Then ideally I can match it to say, okay, what's going out there and how is it aligned? But I think against a market like this, I would start looking more internally. All right, that was our conversation with Hanna Grabenhofer, associate partner at McKinsey Co., recorded in Antwerp a few weeks ago. Oliver, you were also able to speak with Valerie Boitin, senior policy officer of Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Talk about this conversation and maybe explain Ellen MacArthur Foundation for, for people who are not aware about the work that they are doing. So the Ellen MacArthur Foundation works and develops, promotes this idea of a circular economy. And they are working with both businesses, academia, policymakers, and institutions across the globe. And Valerie, she's senior policy officer within the foundation. And we had this talk about the, first of all, where feces the fashion industry are doing today. How is fashion? But then we are getting more into all these upcoming uh, legislations that are happening all over the world. Like, and we also get to hear a little bit about what she's, most excited for in terms of all the uh, uh, upcoming policies that uh, will be coming from the European Union. Yeah, good stuff. Obviously, this is right up our alley. We've been covering this in our feed and on our conference the past year. Super interesting to have Valérie Boitin, Senior Policy Officer at MacArthur on the podcast. Here now, a conversation with Valérie. What are your view on the fashion industry today? I think uh, if you look globally, we see a rise in production and consumption that is not changing and it's unlikely to go away. Mm. Um, also, if you realize there's uh, growing middle classes in uh, countries like India and China and so on, we do see this trajectory of growing production and growing consumption. The problem with that is the fashion industry is largely based on finite resources um, in the sense that we largely rely on new resources, new polyester, new polyamide, new cotton. Mm. Um, I think 97% of the fibers entering the system are, are new. Um, and so we have very low levels of um, recirculating our materials and our products. And I mentioned the underutilization as well. Um, we know, especially in Europe, there's very, yeah, it's difficult to have like uh, very accurate figures on that, but um, there are some figures saying that we tend to throw our garments away after seven or eight times having worn them. Mm. That's, of course, just one research, and it's really hard to, mm. to get to the specifics. Um, but I think there's a general tendency of underutilization. Um, and that's also a bit because the 
economics are missing at times. It's really hard to make a business case out of post-consumption materials. Mm. Um, it's really, yeah, it, it's very hard to compete with linear models in which you just place a new product on the market, that product is sold, and then as a company, your duty or your job basically ends there. Mm. Um, if you want to take that product back and sort it and clean it and repair it or recirculate that, you have a very different type of operations mm. um, you have different challenges and so on and you're basically operating in a system that was designed to accommodate that linear model that just sells it on and, and, and that's where the journey ends mm. um, so that that's really a struggle i think and we're just at the starting point of changing that very system um, i don't know if that answers your, your questions fully i think we're seeing more political attention paid to the fashion industry mm. more than ever before especially in europe but also in places like the u.s Australia now has a voluntary clothing stewardship scheme. Mm -hmm. They have a they have a big strategy um, to um, to tackle things like design, to collect more textiles after use, and so on. So we see different policy initiatives being put in place, and I think that's really interesting and promising. But at the same time, we're still at that first level of tabling initiatives, making proposals, setting out visions. Mm -hmm. We haven't fully started implementing all of these things yet, and that's of course where, where the real challenges will mm -hmm. will come to the fore. Like you said, we see so much legislation, mm -hmm. policies being formed. Mm -hmm. Do you think brands are ready for what is coming? Well, I think partly it is new for brands. And I think historically they haven't been organized in the same way that other industries have in terms of having a presence, um, being very informed of the policy developments and being able to not just stay informed, but also you know share their views, formulate their views and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think because of the novelty of this policy agenda, the, the industry itself is still trying to organize itself and really understand what is happening. Mm. So I think it's fair to say there is still this bit, you know, wait and see mode because it is new and because a lot of these things are in development, but as I said, they're not being implemented just yet. Mm. And for many things, uh, for example, on EPR or on eco-design, proposals have been made, but we don't have the final political agreement on them yet. Mm. So they're not at the point of becoming legislation just yeah, so we're in this in-between mode. So I can I can understand that, that that people don't feel fully ready for it, but that's also quite hard because it hasn't been fully nailed as in this is the new law and these are the articles and these are the duties and obligations. Yeah. And that's I think that's the beauty and the art of, of politics, that it's a negotiation. So I think this is actually the moment to help shape those um, proposals and to mm. help inform them. Yeah. The fashion industry is not doing well and it's not sustainable today, mm. but we still have thousands of job, jobs. People are operating mm. within fashion. Mm. And how could you like sustainably uh, legislate the fashion industry as it looks today? So uh, I don't know about how familiar you are with the EU textile strategy. Mm. Um, That's probably uh, the reference point at the moment. The EU textile strategy, which came out last year, mm. has a vision for the European textile system by 2030, mm. um, for textiles to be consumed in the EU, to be durable, um, to be recyclable, and to be, as they say, to a great extent made of recycled fibers. That is the larger scale vision. Of course, that's a vision, that's a, a dream or, or like an, an ideal end state. And uh, it is, a, yeah, we, we do need to really work on the economics of that circular model and of that circular dream in a way. And I think that's something we shouldn't lose sight of. There is a very real economic opportunity and there's a lot of jobs that can be created in 
collecting products and sorting them and repairing them, which are all very labor intense uh, jobs, basically, or tasks to do. Um, in reusing them, renting products out, there's a whole variety of business models that can be explored. But of course, to get there and to make those models economically viable, we do need to change the, the overarching framework that really, yeah, in part or to a large extent determines the economic vi viability of these models. And that relates to things like our fiscal policies. Given that many of these models are very labor intense, we need to be ready to reflect on the taxation burden that we have on mm -hmm. labor in the EU. We know that the taxation of pollution and taxation of resources, especially finite resources or virgin resources, is it's a very low taxation burden if you compare it to the taxation burden on labor. Mm -hmm. So there is a debate, I think, that needs to happen on that front. We know that we need to design our products differently. At the moment, there aren't really any standardized approaches to what is durability? What does that mean? What, what does good look like? How do you measure it? How do you prove that your product is durable and is able to withstand, let's say, 50 or 60 washes or something yeah. that has resistance to abrasion and all of that? We have no common standards, and it would be great if um, at least the minimum standard becomes mandatory by law so that we have like a unique or like a yeah one, one level playing field and all products have the same minimum level of durability so that they can last longer. And um, they can actually be used repeatedly by several consumers, which also offers business model opportunities. Mm. Um, because, you know, you take a product back, you bring it to another consumer, you take it back again mm. and so on. And the same goes for recyclability. Then there's another aspect uh, around waste. Um, we don't have the infrastructure currently set up to deal with textile waste mm. very well. We have low levels of collection capacity and sorting capacity in the EU. As I mentioned, uh, less than 1% of our textile products are recycled back into new textile products. So there's a lot of work to be done on that front mm -hmm. um, to, as, as you said, uh, yeah, to make this transition sustainable and to create jobs uh, in that process. We'll need some capital investment mm -hmm. to create the system. And then once that system is up and running, it will generate a huge amount of jobs and economic opportunities. But we need that transition mode of really having a clear vision and making the investments that are required. Yeah. So looking at it in a bigger picture, it's rather a reformation of the fashion industry mm. than degrowth and like to... Well, it depends on it. There are so many interpretations of degrowth. Um, mm. So for us, a circular economy is based on eliminating waste and pollution, mm. circulating products and materials and regenerating natural systems. And when you say circulating products and materials, it means that jacket that you have on, for example, mm. you keep it in use for as long as possible. So you may be tired of it, but it goes to someone else in a circular economy. Mm. That means at that moment, it replaces the purchase of something new and you, you basically shrink or degrow mm. the production of new items in a circular economy. You minimize the production of new items. You minimize the use of new resources because you keep what you have mm. in use for as long as possible in a way that is degrowing the production of new items. So in a way that is compatible with degrowth. But I think what we uh, really want to advocate for is a circular economy. It has the word economy in the words. Mm. It needs to make economic sense yeah. to pass your jacket on to someone else. There, there is a value in that jacket. We know that. There is design value. There went so much labor went in it. There's the resources. But that value currently has low economic value because of the system that we're in. Mm. And we need to transform that wider system so that the 
materials value also has an economic value and you get some, you you get something back for giving your jacket <laughs> mm. to someone else or to give it to a company and a company is willing to compensate you for it mm. because there is this value mm. in the jacket but with all these legislations that now are in the works mm. which ones are you most excited for <laughs> Um, I like the eco-design uh, proposal a lot. So that's the eco-design for sustainable products regulation by the commission. Um, because it is so fundamental to tackle, if you want to tackle the environmental impact of a product, you need to look at how it is designed, basically. Mm -hmm. Most of decisions are made at the design stage. And also because at the moment, especially in fashion, there is such a huge diversity in terms of products and materials and material mixes. It's nowhere comparable to these bottles, for example, where you have some level of predictability on, it will be more or less 100% glass or 100% PET. It won't be like, like in fashion, we see products with polyamide and nylon and polyester and cotton all in the same fabric, not even the same product, but just one fabric. And then a jacket, for example, has several layers and, and so on. So it's super, super complex. And in order to make life easier and to make the economics work for uh, for disassembly, for repair, for recycling, you need to standardize these approaches a little bit more, standardize durability, design for recycling, design for disassembly a bit more. Um, so I think that that's really a huge opportunity to do that so that we don't have this huge mixed bag of, of materials. It's really, it's really hard to make money out of that as a recycler or mm -hmm. as, as someone who's trying to bring them back into circulation, mm -hmm. be it through reuse, repair, remaking or recycling. That was Valeria Botan, Senior Policy Officer of Ella MacArthur Foundation, interviewed by our own Oliver Dahle in Antwerp. Oliver, there were other conversations you had on site that we aren't able to get to in this episode. We have one upcoming episode. We're going to share a conversation with Eugene Brapkin, a very famous journalist, would it say thought leader in the fashion industry. Uh, what can you tease about our conversation with, with Eugene that we'll publish on the new year? As you said, Eugene is a thought leader within the fashion industry and the conversations we've heard from today have been very technical and looking into the more business side of fashion and how you how you could navigate that side of the industry with Eugene the talk is much more about the cultural relevance of fashion is fa what is fashion is there any relevance left in fashion today so it's more from uh, that sort of perspective um, and how you could build cult cultural relevance connected to it we'll let that be a cliffhanger till the next year we'll publish that conversation sometime in january Oliver, thank you so much for doing this reporting for us. This will be the second to last episode of this year. So I have to ask Oliver, what's on your wish list? What do you want to see under the Christmas tree on, on Christmas Eve? Any Is it any fashion, jewelry? What are you looking forward to? Not really. And 
this goes very much back to all these conversations that you have around surrounding sustainability and things like that. And I've recently picked up a new hobby, which is mending all my clothes. So maybe like sewing machine, that would be nice. All right, we'll send that straight to Santa Claus in the north of Finland. We have a little of one week left, so we'll see if you get that. This has been the Scandinavian Mind podcast with me, Conrad Olsson, and our dear colleague Oliver Dahle. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. Visit scandinaviamind.com slash newsletter not to miss out on any upcoming and future events. Until next week, bye.